Hi. Welcome to the CGB Sports Show podcast, the last one before the Bombers take on the Argonauts. So we're going to talk to Bob Irving about the game, as well as author Paul Woods, who's in town as he's writing a book on the Argonauts. We'll go deep into the history of that team and why they're struggling right now. Plus, we'll talk to the new head coach of the Winnipeg Blues of the MJHL, Gord Burnett. That's on the podcast. We're joined by The Voice. Of the Blue Bombers here on 680 CGOB, Bob Irving. Bob, how's the weather where you are? Well, I live in Charleswood, Christian, and it's very hot and quite humid. Um, I don't see any tornadoes on the horizon. I hope but, not. Yeah, but when it's like this and there's some wind blowing, you know, all things are possible. So certainly the, I think the conditions are there for some some wild and woolly weather. We only hope it doesn't happen, that's all. So should we be going to you for a live weather hits throughout the night? <laughs> No, okay. no, please don't. I'll let the experts deal with that. <laughs> okay, so we'll, we'll keep with your area of expertise, and that is the CFL tomorrow night, the Bombers taking on the Argos. A lot of the questions and a lot of the thoughts, I guess, this week have been the Bombers are 3-0, and the Argos are 0-3, and we got to make sure we don't take them lightly, right? Well, I think we in the media talk more about that than the, the coaches and the players on the Bombers do, but they're inundated with those questions, uh, Christian, and it's a storyline. It's one you can't get away from, so we do talk about it. Uh, it's interesting that and Steve Daniel digs up all these stats. He's the league statistician. In league history, there have been just five occasions where an 0-3 team has beaten a 3-0 and team, and the last one was in uh, 2011, but before that, it was 1976. Oh, wow. So it's pretty rare for an 0-3 team to beat a 3-0 and team, but it has happened, and as we know in sport, all things are possible. The Argos come in here improving. You know, they got beat 64-14, so you've only got one way to go, and that's up. Yes. And then they lost their second game 32-7, to and I've watched all these games, and they looked better in that game. They looked at least sort of semi-competitive, and they played much better last week. They lost at home 18-17 to BC. But I see a gradual improvement, and I talked to their coach, Corey Chamberlain, today, and he said, look, we got all kinds of new coaches and new players, and, and we're, we're melding together, and we are getting better. I mean, what else are they going to say, that they're, they're getting worse or spinning their wheels? But, you know, there's evidence that they are. They've given up fewer and gained more yards in each game that they've played. So they have, I think, reason to believe that uh, maybe they can come in here and give the Bombers a good run and perhaps knock them off, and why wouldn't they feel that way? Now, a lot of our attention has been paid on whether or not Adam Big Hill will play tomorrow night. I'm of the mind that he doesn't need to play. Whether they have him or not, they should be able to beat this Argos team. Is that how you view it, too? Well, yeah, and I don't think he will play. You know, he he said today that he didn't practice uh, yesterday, which was their last full day of practice. He's been working out and going through, you know, an exercise uh, regime. But uh, I don't know why you would – we're talking about a hamstring injury – why you would uh, run the risk in game four of an 18-game season – of throwing him out there. And, you know, I guess you have to take the opposition into account, Christian, but still, you you want him healthy for the rest of the season. So, I don't know. I'd be surprised if he plays tomorrow night. They're calling it a game-time decision, uh, but I'd be surprised if they put him out there if he hasn't practiced. And and if he hasn't practiced, he's clearly not 100%. So the expectation is that the Bombers will improve to 4-0, 
part of one of the best starts they've had in a long time. And I understand that you are of the belief that this might be the best team you've seen in almost two decades wearing blue and gold. Yeah, I said that on Twitter, and I, I think I've said it to, to everybody that I've talked to, including you, since the you know the Gahari Jones Milt Steagle days, two thousand one. They were fourteen and four. Um, and then they had good teams the two years after that, but th- that was the best team they had in that three- or four-year period, which was really an outstanding period of football here in Winnipeg. It didn't produce the Grey Cup that everybody longs for, but they certainly uh, had a chance, and they, those were exciting teams and all the rest of it. But this is the best-looking Bomber team from top to bottom that I've seen since that era, probably since 2001. And the 3-0 and record, I think, reflects that, but just the personnel that they have. You know, they're... They don't have a weakness, which isn't to say they're not going to lose a game or some games for sure. Uh, but I don't, I don't see a weakness in their overall lineup. And uh, there's not a lot of teams you can say that about. So through three games, though, and uh, coming off that Ottawa game, what do you see as the biggest spot where they can improve? Well, I guess they'd like to get more quarterback sacks. They've only got, uh, I think, four sacks. You have four sacks in the first three games. And, you know, that's a stat that everybody kind of focuses on, and we talk a lot about that. I think they've had pretty good quarterback pressure, Christian, but the sacks just haven't been there. So, And I don't think that – I know the coaches don't worry about that as much as those of us who talk about sacks do. They're quite happy with the pressure they've received. Uh, from their defensive front and linebackers. But I think they'd like to see more quarterback sacks. Those are impact plays. And then on offense, they were very consistent in the Ottawa game uh, until Matt Nichols went out. And even after that, they moved the ball pretty well. But, you know, I I think they can be more consistent. Uh, Certainly that was one game when they were, but they'd like to do that week after week. So as they often say, there's still room for, for improvement, and I think that's two areas, consistency on offense, game after game after game. They certainly had it last week. And uh, I won't say more pressure up front, but more of those uh, glory plays, the sacks. Do you think it helps the Bombers that they start off the season with maybe not the murderer's row of opponents that some of the other teams are playing against? They don't face Calgary till later on. They've got, you know, they had Ottawa last week. They got Toronto. They had BC before they could figure themselves out. Do you think that really will help them as they go forward in the season that they have time to figure it out against maybe not the best opponents? You know, I've thought about that, and I, I think there's arguments on both sides of that. I see Calgary as more vulnerable now than they might be later when they get players healthy and and get all their new faces incorporated, although they certainly look good the other night in beating Saskatchewan. Um, They played Edmonton already, the Bombers did, and the the Eskimos are a tough team. Uh, These Eastern teams will probably, certainly Toronto, uh, I think will get better as they go. So, yeah, I suppose, you know, when you're playing the East, everybody thinks those are the easier games. Uh, Saskatchewan, I, I don't know. I, I think the Bombers might have been well-served to get Saskatchewan early this season because the Riders, if they ever get their quarterback situation settled away, will will be a tough team to play. So I think there's arguments on both sides. But, look, they get uh, – Ottawa's one of the better teams in the East, and they beat them. So they get Toronto twice now. Ottawa comes in here. Then they go to Hamilton um, and then it's back home to play Calgary. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think you can make the argument you just proposed, but uh, I don't know if it's quite as solid as it would have been if Calgary and Saskatchewan were as strong as they've been in the past. And you don't want to make proclamations through four weeks, but it's safe to say that right now the Bombers are the best team in the CFL. 
Yeah, I think they've proven that. All the power rankings across the league uh, give them the the number one spot. They deserve it. Uh, And if they can play at a higher level, as they believe they can, that will only be cemented going forward. But uh, now, again, be careful about tomorrow night. Uh, You know, you've got to – you could talk all you want, but you better walk the the walk. And this is a game that – and I don't think – Christian, I don't think there's a chance in the world that they'll be overconfident or not well prepared. But there is an emotional component to sport. And sometimes if it's not there where it needs to be, it can make a difference. And that's, I think, what's difficult to muster up because players are human and they do know that the team they're playing tomorrow night is not as good as some of the other ones they've played. They know that. Um, So... I don't know. We'll see. I, I don't expect them to have any sort of a letdown or a, a stumble, um, and I know they don't. So let's see if they can prove that tomorrow night. And I know you're not in the business of making predictions, but what are you? What kind of game are you expecting tomorrow night? Well, I don't know if Toronto's offense with McLeod Bethel Thompson at quarterback can have much success against this Winnipeg defense, which played really well in Ottawa last week. Bethel Thompson is a journeyman. Um, he threw for 300 yards against BC last week, and he does have, they've got some dynamic receivers in Darrell Walker and S.J. Green, and, uh, you know, they've got some good players. James Wilder is a force at running back, if you can get him going. But I, I think the Argos are going to have some trouble moving the ball consistently. And uh, if the Bomber offense with Nichols at the controls can pick up where it left off against Ottawa, Boy, I think they could have themselves a, a pretty good night tomorrow night. So, I don't know. It's hard for me not to see a bomber victory and a, and one in sort of a convincing fashion. But, again, I, I will always temper that with <laughs> I've been doing this for a long time, and I've seen a lot of upsets, mm-hmm. and, and they're always possible. So I expect a bomber win. I expect a good performance. I don't think Toronto's as good a team as they are. I know they're not right now. Uh, and so I'll leave it at that. And I'm joined in studio by author Paul Woods, who is writing a book about the Argonauts, the opponent. How are you doing, Paul? I'm doing great. Thanks, Christian. So I guess first, before we get into the what you're, you're writing about, this season's Argonauts are not going to be one probably for the history books. That's, well, unless they become like the BC Lions of 2011 and go from 0-5 to the Grey Cup, but you don't see that happening. I don't even see that happening, and I'm a diehard fan who's a perpetual optimist, but they, they're they off to a rough start, there's mm-hmm. no doubt. 0-3, and, 3 and uh, the, even you look at last week, they probably should have beat the Lions. Yes, absolutely. That game was totally winnable. I mean, they they made four or five glaring mistakes that if they'd even just not done one of them, there was a really right. good chance they were going to win that game. But you add them all up. You can't when you're when you're struggling anyway, and then you make dumb mistakes like mm-hmm. you know missing a field goal because the holder and the snapper are not on the same wavelength. You it kills you, right. and it's it's almost worse to lose by one point than to lose by fifty. <laughs> and I'm a rouge on the last play too. Yep. So tell me about the book you're working on. So the book is about the 1991 Argonauts, uh, and uh, they, uh, of course, won the Grey Cup in Winnipeg, the first Grey Cup ever played in Winnipeg. That's why I'm here. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm sort of getting the Winnipeg angles on this. Uh, what I describe it for as far as the book, I say, you know, the Argonauts have been playing football under that name as Argonauts since 1873, almost 150 years. And of all those years, 
1991 was the greatest year in the history of the Argonauts. It may not have been the greatest team. They had Doug Flutie five years later, and he was that was, team was right. unstoppable. But the greatest year, the most magical, electrifying year in the history of the Argonauts was 1991. John Candy, Wayne Gretzky, Bruce McNall, Rocket Ismail, Matt Dunnigan, Pinball Clemens, so many storylines, and it all culminated right here in Winnipeg in the coldest Grey Cup ever played with Rocket scoring the winning touchdown and the beer can coming out of the stands and almost hitting him. It's just an amazing story. So take me back to 1991. What was the climate of the CFL at that time, and how is it different from today? Well, you know, it's interesting. I think it's actually fair to say, Christian, that the, the league was in worse shape than it is now as a league. There were there were several teams Wasn't that were teetering. Wasn't long before they went to the U.S. Well, that's right. And they did that as almost as a desperation play. I mean, there was, the, you know, the uh, uh, Montreal Alouettes folded on the eve of the 87 season, uh, taking away a lot of history. And in 1990-91, you had Ottawa Rough Riders were at one point declared bankrupt. Uh, Calgary Stampeders were on the verge of collapse. Uh, Hamilton was on the verge of folding, um, and it was it really looked like the CFL was heading to to the end. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, comes Bruce McNall, the owner of the LA Kings, and to buy the team, to buy the Argonauts, and he brings along Wayne Gretzky and John Candy. And the hype all of a sudden went through the roof in Toronto in a way that had probably never happened. And it was uh, it was one of those things where it flared up big for a year, and then it fell back off again. And that's part of the story. I mean, the book will focus primarily on 91, but it mm-hmm. will also get into sort of what led up to 91 and what happened afterwards. Well, what happened afterwards, too, was a back-to-back Blue Jays titles. Yeah, absolutely. 92, 93. And, uh, you know, this, Toronto's got a funny history. Uh, whenever the Argos have won the Grey Cup, tennis has gone down the year after. Uh, it's just a, it's a weird phenomenon. Um, and I, I, I think part of it is that, you know, they, they were, they're actually, they were like, like Bomber fans are now a little bit. You guys have been waiting 29 years to win the mm-hmm. Grey Cup. The Argos waited 31, from 52 to 83. In fact, I wrote a book about the 83 Argos, the, fi- the team that finally ended the drought. Right. And it was, I, I say now that it was almost like when they won that Grey Cup in 83, it was like a pressure valve got released. Everybody, everybody was super happy about it. You know, the city went crazy in '83. There was a giant parade. It wasn't as big as the Raptors parade recently, but it was a right. big parade. And then everybody said, "Okay, now we finally won the Great Cup. Now let's move on to baseball. Now let's move on to other pursuits." And that happened in '84. It happened again in '92 after they won the Great Cup. It's this weird thing where Toronto doesn't seem to appreciate what it has when it has the good teams. And unfortunately, back in the early 80s and through the 70s, there was still a lot of demand for it. So they were selling 45,000 seats a game in Exhibition Stadium. But after 83, tennis started to drop, and it just dropped all through the 80s. It spiked up in 91 when the Rocket came and that great team came, but then it dropped again. And, you know, amazingly, when Flutie was there in 96, 97, they averaged like 18,000 fans in a 50,000-seat stadium. Looked terrible. Yeah. Absolutely. And so they moved, uh, not that long ago now, they moved to BMO Field, their current home, more cozy, but still not an easy sell in Toronto. Yeah, you know, it's funny. There are a lot of people, I think, a lot of Argo fans believed, and I think even the, the, the management at the time believed that moving to BMO would be a panacea, that it would it would get them out of that horrible facility. Skydome was a truly terrible mm-hmm. place to watch a football game. Even when it was full, it was bad because the lower level, the sight lines were awful. It was a baseball configuration. The high level, the 500, where you can get a great angle, there's no leg room. So it was a terrible place to play games. And everybody thought, okay, we'll move into this beautiful outdoor stadium on the lake, back to our roots. And it is a fantastic facility to watch a game in. I've, I've, I love my season's tickets. They're just great. It's great mm-hmm. sight lines. There's not even ads on the grass. You know, right. it's real grass. Everybody thought, 
that's going to solve the problem. Well, it's a little harder to sell than that as it's turning out, and they've got they've got challenge. The good news, I think, from a from a fan perspective, is that the the current president of the Argos, Bill Manning, who who took over a year ago, he's the first guy I've heard in management who's been realistic enough to say this is not a one year build or a five year build. It's a ten year build. They're they're actually trying to turn around about thirty five years of neglect and in some cases abuse by ownership. And it's not going to happen in a short period of time. If you can put another thousand people a, a game in there this year and another thousand people a game in there next year, after five years, you'll be at a good number. It might actually be 500 this year and 500 might take you 10 years. I do believe they can do it, but it's it's a slog. How much of it is the fact that it's Toronto and there are so many other ways to spend your sports entertainment dollars? It's it, that's a huge part of it for sure. I, I don't I don't know that people in that living in in the smaller centers of the CFL fully appreciate the fact that the Argos compete not only with the hockey team and of course the Leafs are a massive thing who they've now got the pent up demand of 52 years of no right. championship and so it's growing and growing. But you've also got the Raptors, you've got the Blue Jays. You've got an, a, a wealth of, of entertainment options. TFC I mean, like, as well. TFC, and then you've got like a massive amount of theater. There's there's so many and and music. All the big acts come through Toronto. I mean, every one mm-hmm. comes through there, and even even smaller level acts that that wouldn't make it to smaller size cities all make it to Toronto to play Massey Hall or or other places like that. So you've just got an endless amount of options for how you spend your money. And unfortunately, the Argos are just not in the consciousness the way they were. I, you know, I, I've been around Winnipeg today, and, and I've been amazed by how truly embedded the Bombers are in the fabric of this community. I see billboards everywhere for the W with community names. Yeah, and, that's a new initiative. Yeah, and I mean, even saw I saw I drove by a business that just had had a big banner on the front of the thing that said "Go Bombers," and I'm thinking like I don't think the Bombers even paid for that. That just the business put right. it up there, right? And I'm just I'm I'm jealous. I mean, the Argos <laughs> have not been in that in Toronto's level of, of of cultural consciousness of that level probably since about 1971, I suspect. And safe to say, it probably won't ever happen again. Well, yeah, probably not to that extent. I mean, there's just too much. But I do believe they can build it back to being a successful entity. Too. It'll be, it, it's going to be a niche. There's no doubt that it is going to be a niche thing. It's not going to be massive like, the, like the, the Jays. Well, the Jays are actually dropping down again. But the Leafs and the Raptors, I think, are, are now firmly embedded forever. Uh, the Argos will never get to that level. But right. I think they can get to the level where they can get 25,000 fans a game and and hundreds of thousands of fans want, interested enough to watch what's going on on TV. In fact, we, we already have a lot of them watching it on TV now. They just don't go to the damn stadium. Right. <laughs> it is, well, and it is for people that maybe live in the suburbs or Mississauga or something like that. It's not the easiest place to get to. No, that, no one wants to go in the Gardner. Yeah, oh, absolutely right. I mean, you know, every now and then pe- people will flare up with these ideas. Let's build a stadium out in Mississauga or out in Oshawa. And what that un- what that fails to understand is that there's you can't get to places around the GTA easily without you know the only really the location there now is is about as good as it's going to get because at least it's central and you know all the roads go there and all the train lines go there including the subway and the the commuter trains but it's I never want to drive to a game I <laughs> I I take the train every time because it's way too hard to go right. on the Gardner you could fight traffic for two hours mm-hmm. it's a little different than here. A lot different. I'm, the live, Winnipeg seems like a very livable city, and I, I got to say, I am super jealous of how much football matters here. Yeah, people think that Route 90, the traffic's bad. Before I let you go, Paul, just back to 1991, were you uh, were you covering the Argos in 91? 
No, I was a fan. I was, I mean, I covered the team in the late '80s for a couple of years in Calgary, um, but and I did work as a journalist all through that period. But I was, I was only in sports for a couple of years, so I was, I, uh, I was following the Argos as a fan back in '91. Um, I didn't go to the Grey Cup in, in Winnipeg, and I guess I'm glad in a way because I do. I would have frozen, but uh, <laughs> yeah. I did get to see a couple of the games, including the home opener that year where they had the Blues Brothers, and it was. I describe it. I will describe it in the book as probably the greatest sporting spectacle Toronto's ever seen. I mean, it was it was just a massive event that night. And football really mattered on that opening night in 1991. And then the Argos went through undefeated at home all year. The guy that they paid an outlandish amount of money to, Rocket Ismail, scored the winning touchdown in the Grey Cup here in, in minus 30, got a beer can that almost hit him as he crossed the goal line. It's a great story. Did you find the guy who threw it? I have found the guy who I believe threw it, and if you and if you anybody wants to know more about it, uh, you can obviously get the book when it comes out in a couple of years. But you can also look at the Saturday Winnipeg Free Press. My story about that will be in there. Lovely. All right, Paul, I appreciate you coming down today. Thank you, Christian. It's been great to do it. All right, that is Paul Woods working on a story or a book, I should say, about the 1991 Toronto Argonauts. Now, this past week, the Winnipeg Blues of the MJHL hired a new head coach, bringing in Gord Burnett. 38-year-old who had served as an assistant with the Kootenai Ice the past four seasons. And Gord joins me now from Regina, his hometown. And Gord, how does a Regina boy feel about moving to Winnipeg? You know, I, I don't think it's too too different than Regina. It's just a little bigger, I think. <laughs> no problems with the Rough Riders-Blue Bombers rivalry there? Me? No, I'm a hockey guy. That doesn't bother me too much. Okay. So... How did it come about that you were uh, contacted or reached out to become the head coach of the Winnipeg Blues? Well, I have a relationship uh, with Matt and the ownership group there, and and uh, I know Terrace, the general manager, fairly well. We've worked together uh, over the last couple of years with uh, Team Saskatchewan. So, you know, we talked briefly about it a little bit over the last couple of weeks, and then it kind of got a lot more serious uh, last week, and... Uh, we decided that, uh, you know, it was going to be a good fit for us, and uh, we decided uh, that I'd be moving to Winnipeg and coach the uh, Winnipeg Blues. What do you know about, I know you played in the SJHL, but uh, the level of play and the players you're going to be working with in the MJHL coming up? Well, it's a little bit different. I actually just got out of a three-hour meeting with Terrace. We went through the whole thing, and I, uh, I've always tried to keep up to date with all the leagues, and I, I actually saw a game in the Anavik Cup uh, up in North Battleford with Portage, and it's a different player that, I've, that I'm used to working with, but with the Blues, we're going to have a younger group of guys anyway. So I've been, I'm used to working with a younger, younger player like I had been in Kootenai with the Ice, and, and uh, you know, they're good players. They, they, they all want to be coached. They all want to get better, and, and that's what we're going to uh, try to do in Winnipeg. Your prior coaching experience, trans, how does that translate into what you're going to bring to the table here with the Blues? Well, I've coached at, at really uh, a number of different levels uh, in the minors, in, the, in minor pro, and then in uh, the NCAA and major junior hockey with, uh, with the ice for the last four years. And for me, hockey is still hockey at all the different levels. It's just you know, the player you're working with, the age of the player, the skill level of a player. So, you know, as you get younger, they, they have to learn a lot more about the game and, and different skills that it takes and, and a lot of, you know, situational awareness and game sense that it takes to, to play hockey. After minor hockey, the game changes a lot with the structure that gets put in place by your coach. And um, I think for me, 
working with that age of player and now being the head coach, I'm excited to do my own things and uh, see what we can teach these young guys and uh, help them develop into the players that they want to be. I'm curious, uh, after playing seven years of pro hockey, you played in the ECHL Central Hockey League. Why did you want to get into coaching? Well, you know, I, I, I've always loved the game and, you know, I've had a lot of different coaches that had a big impact on me in my life. And I feel like it's one way you can, uh, you can have an impact on today's youth and help them develop into the people that they want to be and, and, uh, help develop leaders out in the world and in the community and, and help them. They all have dreams to play at the next level. And, and I think that's, uh, that's something that coaches, uh, Love helping young young athletes do. Do you ever look back on your uh, your pro hockey days and reminisce? Never. Never. No, I don't really. I, I I really enjoy coaching. I was never really a great hockey player. I was I was a guy that loved the game, loved the loved my teammates, and I have a lot of great friends from the time I played. And and um, I shouldn't say never because when I see a guy I played with, we talk a little bit about it. But it's more what you're doing now and. And those types of things, but you know, I just love the being around the guys and competing every day, and and uh, so I really don't reminisce about the, the time I played. No. How would you describe yourself as a defenseman? Well, I was, I was just a rugged defenseman that, you know, shut down, you know, logged some minutes against against some skilled guys, and then killed penalties and did the did the uh, jobs that everyone really didn't want to do. You know, I blocked shots, killed penalties, fought whoever I had to fight. Whatever the team needed is, uh, is essentially what I did. So I'm on your hockey DB page. Do you know, can you tell me how many goals you had in the ECHL and CHL? Uh, I don't know. I could. I'm sure I could count them on one hand, maybe two at the most. It's six. Six. There you go. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't lying to you. There you go. Do you still have jerseys from places like Utah, Youngstown, Laredo, Elmira, Trenton, Phoenix, Victoria, Colorado, or Arizona? Uh, you know, I think I have a couple, you know, sometimes they give you the jerseys at the end of the season. So I, I have a couple hanging somewhere in a closet. I'm not sure where they are, but I do have a couple somewhere. I know that. So back to your coaching now, what does the rest of the summer look like for you as you gear up for your first season with the Blues? Well, this is, we just committed to do this. So I'm, I'm hard at work putting together the plan for the season. You know, I, just, I mentioned I just sat down with Terrace for three hours, went through the entire schedule. Now I got to plug in some more of the things that I want to do, and I'm working uh, with Hockey Canada with the U17. So we got the development camp coming up next week. So that'll be a week in Calgary, working with uh, you know the best 16 year olds in the country. So that's exciting. And then after that, uh, hopefully take a couple days to relax at, uh, by the water at the lake, and then I'll be packing up and moving to Winnipeg. Do you know where you're going to be living in Winnipeg? I've been on the internet for the last three days, nonstop looking for uh, places to live. Uh, and um, I have not found anything yet. And, and I'm a little bit surprised at the prices, but not shocked, I guess. But uh, I'll find something. I just don't know where yet. Well, you think they're high? I think so, yeah. Well, I, I'm coming from Cranbrook the last, I've been in okay. Cranbrook the last four years. And prior to that, I was in some small towns as well. So. The living, uh, the cost of living is a little bit higher in Winnipeg for me, anyway. I mean, it's, as far as big cities are concerned, though, it's not too bad. 
No, no, I'm sure compared to big cities, but I have not been in big cities. I was in Cranbrook, British Columbia. Before <laughs> that, I was in uh, South Bend, Indiana. Before oh, yeah. that, I was in northern Arizona. All small community communities where the cost of living was uh, maybe what I've become accustomed to. So it's maybe a little bit of a shock, but I'll get used to it here when I settle on something. How much time have you spent in Winnipeg in your life? Really not that much. Um you know, I, I was fortunate enough to help out with Jets development camp uh, last summer. So that was a week. And then other than that, I have really not spent uh, any uh, any time there, really. Been through it, but that's about it. Okay. So if there's not anything you're you're really looking forward to finding out about the city then, other than the hockey market? Well, I know it's a hockey-crazy city, and, and I'm excited to become part of it. And, uh, you know, I'll get to know the city when I get there and... Uh, uh, I'm sure there's a lot to offer, but it's all going to be new to me. All right, Gord. Well, I appreciate you taking time to talk to me tonight, and uh, best of luck as you get ready for the season. Hey, thanks, Christian. I appreciate it. Tune in to the CGOB Sports Show weeknights from 7 to 9 with me, Christian O'Mell, or you can download the podcast on iTunes. It's actually on iTunes now. Wow. If you got an Android, then I think you're out of luck, but Apple products, you're good. So listen to the podcast, please. Subscribe. You can rate it. What's the worst that could happen?